This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode has been carefully curated from the Top of Mind archive, and there's a lot to choose from. We've been going in-depth with guests on the air every weekday since 2015, searching for new perspectives and ideas. I hope what you hear today makes you think about your world a little differently and sparks satisfying new conversations with the people in your life. Let's dive in. For 50 years, kids have been learning along with Big Bird, Elmo, Grover, Oscar the Grouch, Cookie Monster. How has Sesame Street managed such staying power? entertaining, it's high quality, it's got Muppets, and it's backed by a lot of research. As the science of child development progressed over the last 50 years, Sesame Street has evolved in subtle ways to stay in touch with preschoolers and their parents. Lucille Burbank worked on Sesame Street's research team for a decade and wrote a book called The Inside Secrets of Sesame Street. She's with me now. Lucille Burbank, welcome. Thanks for your time. Oh, it's great to be here. What it is, is it's great to have you. What exactly was your was your job as part of Sesame Street's research team? Well, it was really to go out and um, do research on preschoolers, find out what was working, what they were comprehending, what they were attending to, what, and then making recommendations to the head writer, changing the script sometimes. But it was mainly just and, you know, just mainly writing up research, going out. We, we'd use those checker cabs <laughs> and we'd go out to all sorts of schools and do all sorts of uh, research and using materials, too, to make sure that they're comprehending or to see if they're comprehending. And then we'd change what wasn't wasn't working. Um, and also meeting with the head writer was very important so we could make important changes in the script. So what was an example? Um, What's an example of something that something that got changed because of research? Oh, OK. So there was one one um, piece we were doing on cooperation and uh, the producers are saying they oh you know, they always like humor. And so they were exiting the segment or the um, block or episode with something like, oh, cooperation does, doesn't pay off or it will, will not or something like that. Some some kind of fun thing. Mm -hmm. And the research team came in and said, hey, we need you to show that cooperation does work why it works, and we need to exit in a fun way with um, showing that. So they went back to the drawing board and they said, oh, you know, they're right, because um, if we if we say, you know, if we just wishy-washy about cooperation working, it won't. And so um, they went back and, you know, did it, and we had a funny kind of seen there, but it showed that cooperation is working. Hmm. Where did this commitment to making everything research-based come from? Oh, gosh. You know, Sesame Street is the most researched program in the history of television. And it's not just because it's a children's show um, in any show. Um, the reason is, is we wanted to make sure we were able to grab the point of view of the child and make sure we were still talking to the child's point of view, keeping updated and things that, you know, the producers, they, they tend to be very intuitive and they're very good and the, the writers and they've been writing for children. But once the research came in, so many of them were surprised of, Hey, things will write on or things they thought they're going to be uh, above their heads were right there. Things they thought that were going to be exciting or so forth didn't have the preschoolers' attention. So they were confirming kind of, um, or, or not confirming, but they were kind of grounding their, their intuitiveness 
and their experience in reality and research so, and evaluation. So, so, so are you saying that they, are you saying that episodes of Sesame Street would be produced, they'd be filmed, they'd be scripted, all that stuff. And then before it ever went on the air, it would go out to like a focus group of preschoolers to see if it worked or not. Yeah. Formative research, which means doing research ongoing. Hmm. There's summative evaluation and there's formative uh, evaluation. Summative is after the program is produced and so forth, um, you evaluate it and you don't change it. Uh, that was for the federal government and for their funding, those purposes. But then there was formative evaluation that was always done. This means as it's going on, you will change it according to what you're finding out from your target audience. You have some great stories about some of some of that that we'll get to in a moment. But let's talk about some of the basic decisions that were made about Sesame Street right from the get-go, um, 1968, 69. At that moment, Captain Kangaroo was on at its end, right? And Mr. Rogers was yeah. on the air at the time. What was Sesame Street trying to do that was different? How this whole started is Joan Cooney, who's the co-founder, and Lloyd Morissette, uh, also the co-founder. They are were at uh, had a dinner party, and you know they were just grappling with the situation that hey, television is really not that great, and they were worried about it. Um, the feeling at that time was. It's a wasteland. Um, and we had action for children's television by Peggy Sharon coming in. There was the Sergeant, Journal, uh, Sergeant General's um, uh, big book on the violence in television. Man had walked on the moon. So it was a, a whole can-do in the air. So the workshop said, hey, at this dinner party, what, why don't we do something special? Why don't we change television? I think we can just turn it on its end. Let's have it reach its potential and educate these kids. Also, we're looking at preschool education. Head Start started at that time, but there were the um, Black and, and Hispanic and poverty children who were not going to preschool and they were not getting um, a good start in school, which was important. So uh, Joan Cooney said, hey, at that time for a penny, a child, you could, we can teach them preschool and get them ready. And that's and that's what they decided to do. Um, so Captain Kangaroo had been successful. In fact, a lot of um, puppeteers and writers had come over from Captain Kangaroo to work on Sesame Street. You also, meanwhile, had Mr. Rogers that was also becoming very popular. But his approach was different in some key ways from Sesame Street. And you have this funny story where you describe um, kind of a conflict that occurred when Big Bird uh, was invited to come on the Mr. Rogers Neighborhood Program. And Mr. Rogers, just describe kind of what, what the back and forth was there with Big Bird's appearance on Mr. Rogers. Oh, that was so funny. Because can you imagine having an argument with Fred Rogers as Carol Spinney, who played, um, was the puppeteer for Big Bird, said to me. Hmm. <laughs> he said, no. <laughs> and at any rate, what happened was um, he was asked to go on the show. And there's a big difference. Um, Mr. In, in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, Fred Rogers is very, very adamant about keeping reality and fantasy separate. Very much. And there must be a... a big, firm dividing line between reality and fantasy. Whereas on Sesame Street, um, Jim Henson and the Muppets and everything, they mix reality and fantasy up all the time. So any rate, so Fred says to uh, Carol Spinney, I'm going to have you come in the house. This is the reality portion of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and I'm going to introduce you and then ask you to slowly take off your costume. And uh, <laughs> Carol Spenny said, no, I can't do that. And it happened that um, there was a time where he had to, when he was on Sesame Street and Jim Henson was there, he had to exit his uh, 
costume or at least put his head out because a fire was uh, raging in the studio mm. and he was catching on fire. And Jim Henson said to him, never do that again. It'll ruin the fantasy aspect of Big Bird. I don't want to ever see that. So Carol Spinney is saying to Fred Rogers, I can't do that. No, no, no. So they're going back and forth about the marionettes and puppets. And, and Fred Rogers is saying, oh, but you have to. The children have to understand the difference. So finally, <laughs> Carol Spinney stopped and he said, hey, why don't we do this? Let's change the script hmm. and just put me in fantasy land and it'll work out all right. Hmm. Um, so that's how, it, that's how it was done. But they did have the Sesame Street, uh, did have Fred Rogers come on the show and Fred Rogers did talk very gently and carefully about why it was important to separate reality from fantasy. Mm. So they were entertaining both points of view. Describe yeah. the describe a bit what the kind of why it was important for Sesame Street to blend Muppets and real world and sort of, you know, have that oh, yeah. fantasy reality yeah. blend. They wanted to make learning fun. And there were things that the Muppets could do that a human being couldn't do. For instance, Cookie Monster could sell a soul to the devil for a cookie. And we couldn't have a role model of a actor or actress doing that. Uh, the count could count grains of sand forever. And there were other ways that the Muppets could make learning so entertaining and so involving uh, just by their characterizations, you know, they're so appealing that um, the producers really thought, hey, you know, there's a role for them. And as time went on, the Muppets became they didn't want them to become a star, but they really did become a star. I mean, we always have to ask someone, who's your favorite Muppet? Yeah. <laughs> um, another evolution that you describe, uh, Lucille Burbank, in your book, The Inside Secrets of Sesame Street, was um, the expansion of the mission of what the what the 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 Sesame Street workshop wanted to teach children. So initially, um, it, there there was a heavy focus on, you know, the ABCs and the one, two, threes, and then, and, and you know, and reading basic words. And then it, it, they added more of the emotional intelligence piece of it, right? Social skills. And so you describe an, uh, coming in at a very interesting moment in the early 80s when you began uh, as a researcher. Yeah. Um, what yeah. was the, what was the, the that year's sort of non-academic goal that you had to, had to to think about teaching to, to, to children. Yeah, well, you know, it was a really um, courageous goal. It was exciting in terms of not um, uh, what happened is Will Lee, who played uh, Mr. Hooper, Mr. Hooper's store, the storekeeper, Mr. Hooper's, you know, of the store. Um, Will Lee, he had been acting on Sesame Street for 12 years and he died. And so usually we're dealing with cognitive uh, numbers, shapes, letters, classification, that kind of stuff. But now we're switching to the affective side. And instead of saying, hey, he, he'll go on vacation or he decided to um, retire or whatever, uh, the workshop decided to head on uh, deal with death. And that was wonderful. And I always remember Fred Rogers when I interviewed him saying, you know, we need more honest adults in our lives, Seal. So I just felt so great in, in starting to work at the workshop that we were being honest with the children and we were dealing with death. A beautiful, we again, we did research all on this. Each of us had a project to do so that um, we could feed, Norman Stiles was the head writer at that time, we could feed him things like, um, what happens to a child? Uh, how does that child feel when someone dies? And we would find primarily they, they feel like, well, oh, who will take care of me? Or in, in, um, in the script, we say, oh, well, who, um, 
Big Bird w- would say, who would make my um, birdseed milkshake mm. anymore? And so we would do that. Norman Stiles wrote the most beautiful script. I'd like to listen to a bit of that episode that I have here. Okay. It really is a beautiful. Sure. Um, so this was oh, in the early 80s. Yeah. And, and it centers around um, Big Bird's um, learning about death. Um, Big Bird, of course, is the character standing in for the the toddler, the core audience of Sesame Street. And in this moment, just to kind of give people a basic background, um, it most of the maybe all of the human adult participants uh, cast are there, kind of all gathered around. And Big Bird comes in and he's showing off the pictures that he's been drawing of all of the people, all of the Sesame Street um, neighbors. And then he pulls out one of Mr. Hooper, and and they're like, "Oh, it's beautiful." And he says, I can't wait to show him. And then they're, all the adults are like, but Big Bird, we told you he's dead. And he's like, well, I'll show it to him when he comes back. And then here's, here's kind of um, part of that exchange. Big Bird, when, when people die, they don't come back. Ever? No, never. Why not? Well, Big Bird, they're dead. They... They can't come back. Well, she's going to come back. Why, who's going to take care of the store? And who's going to make my birdseed milkshakes and, and tell me stories? Big Bird, uh, I'm going to take care of the store. Mr. Hooper, he left it to me. And I'll make you your milkshakes and, and we'll all tell you stories and sure, we'll make sure you're okay. Sure, we'll look after you. Oh. It really is a lovely scene um, and so interesting to hear the backstory, Lucille Burbank, of how it came together. You also describe um, the the really interesting backstory of how um, how Sesame Street w- became really m- maybe the f- first children's program to show uh, children with developmental disabilities on camera d- doing oh, doing normal right. children things. Tell us a little bit about Jason, who was actually the son of one oh. of the writers. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Emily uh, Pearl Kingsley, um, she looked at Sesame. She's the mother of Jason. And she looked at Sesame Street when it first debuted, fell in love with the show, had never been a writer. And so had to learn to be a TV writer in order to work on the show in 1970. And uh, she's going along and she's um, looking at this, the theater for the deaf and doing all sorts of research. And then lo and behold, she finds out that she, um, her son has, um, is born with down syndrome and, um, but this was a perfect opportunity for her to have Jason and to show people that, Hey, you know, just because at that time they thought down syndrome, you know, the, there wouldn't be any way of educating the child. And she, you know, said, absolutely not. So she had Jason on time and time again, showing, uh, doing academic work and numbers and counting and so forth. Hmm. And um, she just is such a wonderful, wonderful um, asset and uh, did a lot of special work. She got um, uh, the... Uh, from Theater of the Deaf, she wrote the script for them. She liked them very much. So they got, she got, um, I've gotten Linda something or other, who is the deaf person, mm-hmm. person on Sesame Street. And then we got on to autism. And nowadays, um, we have this new Muppet called Julia that does, um, that is autistic. And the puppeteer for her is, um, her son has autism mm. and at any rate Julia is on um and then April is autism month and so they'll run a number of episodes on that and they keep expanding it and and so forth a and real, it's wonderful a, a real commitment to um to to diversity of abilities and of uh, and races has always been a very diverse cast um <laughs> not just in the uh in the muppet world but obviously in the um in in the world as well of the humans oh. that live on Sesame Street before we go any further i want to hear just a quick clip 
I do have a clip of one of those episodes of Jason when he was maybe two or three. Oh, yeah, do that. And, and then I want to just talk a little bit about the the tolerance and the range of people I, on Sesame Street. I certainly will. So this is Jason okay. when he's about three, Jason Kingsley, and he's talking to Cookie Monster about the letter S. What, okay. what letter is that? S. S? Yeah. And what, what behind here? S. Shoe. S. Shoe. Shoe starts with S. Very good. I also have a quick clip of um, the very first episode where Julia, the Muppet with autism, was introduced. May I see your painting, Julia? Um, Julia? Sometimes it takes Julia a while to answer. It helps to ask again. Uh, Julia, hmm? can Big Bird see your painting? See your painting? Yes. Okay. Oh, all right. Take a look at this, everybody. Sesame Street really has, um, at least I learned from your book, <laughs> Lucille Burbank, really really has been a groundbreaker in terms of showing, um, you know, children with uh, developmental disorders d- doing normal things and even academic things <laughs> on screen. Um, what 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 has been driving the 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 commitment to you know diversity on screen in in so many different ways for Sesame Street? Yeah, it is wonderful. You know, what little people know um, uh, is that in the beginning, really, it, there was this professor at Harvard that was working on the board of Sesame Street. And he said, yeah, it's great for us to make learning fun and to do the academic, the cognitive material, but also this is a great way to show tolerance and all kinds of people working uh, together. And in fact, Bob McGrath was um, at the Newark airport and this lady came, was shouting to him and recognized him. Bob McGrath was also an original actor on Sesame Street Mm -hmm. in 1969. So he was traveling and this uh, black lady at the desk said, hi, Bob, and recognized him. And they started a dialogue and everything else. And he says, all of a sudden, gee, you must be very smart from watching Sesame Street. We must have taught you a lot. And she got very serious. And she said, yes, you did. You taught me that all kinds of people can get along. And I never knew that could happen in life. Yeah. So it was one of those beautiful moments. But that that tolerance and combining all that diversity is um, always been uh, one of the main goals of Sesame Street. I'm speaking with Lucille Burbank, who for 10 years was a researcher at Sesame Street. She's author of The Inside Secrets of Sesame Street. And we have to take a really quick break here on Top of Mind. When we come back, we'll talk about the many ways that Sesame Street over the years uh, developed techniques to keep kids engaged and also make parents stop and watch. For example, this was groundbreaking. The first celebrity guest to appear on Sesame Street. Can you guess who this voice is? One, two... We'll have the answer right after we take a quick break here on Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. It's good to have you with us for Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. We're talking Sesame Street, which has been on the air for more than 50 years now, entertaining generations of children and also educating them. I'm speaking with Lucille Burbank, who worked on Sesame Street's in-house child development research and science team for a decade. This is a team that really did shape and guide how Sesame Street presented knowledge and life to kids on television. Lucille Burbank is author of The Inside Secrets of Sesame Street. Uh, One of the things that you mentioned, Lucille Burbank, was how early on the writers at Sesame Street realized that, yes, kids were the target audience, especially these preschoolers, four-year-olds and younger, but that you also had to appeal to parents. Why did they feel like that was important? Because it's so important for parents to watch 
the television show with their children. I mean, it's always been important, but how do you get parents to do that? First of all, the sound of Sesame Street, its theme song and the sound that came into the kitchen had to be appealing when the show started and when it came on the on the TV. The other thing is, is the scripts were written on uh, two levels one for the child and one for the parents. And we would incorporate jokes, parodies, satires, anything for the parents. And so the child would be looking at their mother or father and wondering why they're chuckling. Also (laughs) celebrities, Mm. Um, James Earl Jones or Burt Lancaster, if he would stop, um, his presence would stop a parent, but it would also stop a child. So James Earl Jones was the first celebrity guest to appear on Sesame Street. That's this is his voice counting. All he did Five, was count to ten. Six. Seven. But apparently it was so effective <laughs> that uh, they had him on to do the alphabet. And then uh, they, they started the Sesame Street team would start started talking about the James Earl Jones effect, which was basically this getting parents to stop and pay attention kind of a, a moment that you described. Right. Yeah. And again, it's that presence. And they would encourage other celebrities to have that presence when they were reciting the alphabet or numbers or so forth. Yeah. And it it is, and you know he has such a presence. Yeah. I mean, you know, and Darth Vader and all sorts of things. <laughs> he has that the, presence. Uh, the spoofs that you um, mentioned are, 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 to this day, I think are some of the cleverest play puns and play on words of various, um, for the most part, very adult television shows that children would not be watching, sh- probably should not be watching in many cases, but parents will be <laughs> chuckling along. I just have a couple of examples that I thought were pretty fun from over the years. Your tea, Mum. Thank you. Oh! Why is the tea not going in my cup? Perhaps because you are upside down, Mum. Well, of course we are upside down. This is upside down to an Abby. I need 30 rocks for the rock sketch. Where are they? Lemon! Looking for a Liz Lemon here! Yeah, right over here. Anybody oh. by the name of Lemon? Uh, that would be me. Oh, hey, yeah. Uh, I-, I got a delivery yes, for you. Yes, yes. Do you have the 30 rocks? Do these look like marshmallows? Uh, oh. No. Oh. Jesteros needs a new king or queen. And to decide, we will play a game. A game of chairs! Huzzah! <laughs> Just a few of the many, many uh, television spoofs that Sesame Street has done over the years, teaching basic skills to kids, but also entertaining their parents slyly as well. Um, Lucille Burbank, early on, Sesame Street did get criticized a little bit. Um, One of the criticisms in the late, this was, of course, the late 60s, you know, the so with all of the kind of hippie stuff that was going on and at that time, there was some concern that it was maybe too frenetic, that it was going to somehow harm kids and their attention span. One of the things you point out that people were kind of um, concerned about, or at least the critics were concerned about, was this um, little uh, animation that would occur in Sesame Street shows called Jazz Numbers. And it had Grace oh, yeah. Grace Slick, <laughs> who is the lead singer uh, of Jefferson Airplane. Um, and it would sound something like this. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Seven! There would be this particular one had this um, little animation. It was a very frenetic animation of a wizard and the number seven jumping all over the screen. Right. Yeah. Um, How did Sesame Street address that criticism that maybe Uh, this was going to be bad? When I asked John Stone, uh, who was the head, he was the head writer, producer, director. Executive producer. Mm. Now he's called the soul of Sesame Street. When I asked him about that, he said, you know, the show caught a bit of a virus from this and they were just so well done. But then, you know, you have to step back and you have to watch the show. And he said, yes, unfortunately. But then we were able to say to people, watch the show. Just don't go into the room and see um, and stay there for uh, two or three minutes and not watch and mm. see the 
the modulation of the pace, the slower segments, mm. the longer segments, the medium segments, and so forth. Um, but it did, he did admit it did catch a little bit of a virus. <laughs> we had some, some person, I forgot her name, um, crying out in, in Washington, D.C., or something about that everybody's going to be hyperactive or so forth <laughs> from watching Sesame Street. The but really, when you step back and you watch the show, it has a range of pieces. Mm -hmm. But that did... That did. Um, yeah, that did not help it. Well, there was kind of but there was kind of a balance that Sesame Street was and, and continues to walk. I uh, kind of a fine line that you have to walk, I imagine, um, because on the one hand, these are toddlers and you need to keep their attention. Um, and so things do have to change and sometimes go at a different pace in order to kind of bring them back in. But also you don't want to be making a bunch of hyperactive monsters. Right. Um, you yeah. but you did yeah. describe that a lot of the a lot of the material would go through a test. Um, that the yeah. head researcher called the distractor method. Can you describe that? Oh, yeah, the distractor method. But the, the main thing was, is we were learning that the attention span of a preschooler was so much more than we had originally thought. Okay, so in the beginning, uh, Joan Cooney, co-creator of Sesame Street, she said these children are learning commercials, and uh, they can learn the jingles, they remember the words and everything. We'll use a commercial format to uh, cheat, make learning fun and to make sure it's memorable and they remember it. Uh, then as time went on, um, now Dr. Dr. Palmer, who uh, invented the distractor method, it was quite a method. Um, and he was also the uh, vice president of Sesame Street Research, um, quite a guy. But at any rate, how this distractor method worked is we would show segments and then he would have toys there and then he would have a competing slideshow. So as we're showing the Sesame Street segment or you know, and we identify which segment we wanted to see um, if, if it was working, if it was keeping the attention and so forth. And if the child uh, played with the toys more or, you know, looked at the slideshow show more rather than the uh, Sesame Street uh, segment that was uh, being shown, um, then he would say to the producers, OK, back to the drawing board, you get to see. I want to see an A on this for attention. <laughs> he was always grading them. <laughs> oh, you, um, there, there was a really formative um, change that research guided for uh, the show with regard to yeah. how letters were oh taught. Oh my gosh, that was really, you know, and this is one of the main. Um, Oh, thank goodness for research. Hmm. It, it's one of the main reasons Sesame Street is so strong on research, because you, you really don't know if it's going to work. And so what happened was in the early days, in 1968, uh, the producers, you know, they always think their intuition is great and it was never uh, counteracted or anything. So they produced this I think it was the letter J and J is up in the left hand corner. And then this June bug is dancing in the lower right hand corner. And um, so Palmer went out and the kids did not learn the letter J. They learned all the entertainment, the lovely dance and the song and everything with the June bug dancing, but no J. Mm. And he said to he said to them, hey, you've got to get it into the action. Mm. You just have to. So um, he said, combine it, make the letter a character in the action. So then we got the letter W and we got Kermit the Frog and Kermit the Frog is lecturing about the letter W and the letter W is slowly coming towards Kermit the Frog and oh my gosh um, <laughs> and he's coming up to him and he's about to to plummet him and and 
take over his lecture and get in the way. And Kermit is going, oh, woe is me, woe is me. And so that whole letter and Kermit are intertwined. And Kermit is going through all sorts of uh, W and oh, And um, that worked. Yeah. That worked because it got it, you know, as Palmer would say to me, get it in the action, integrate it. And so that's what they did. Another um, key element of the learning of, of the of the the teaching process for Sesame Street is uh, repetition. And so, um, well, here's just an example, kind of the epitome of that. But just as Wanda was about to drop a wig into the warm water, a wild wind whipped the wig from her hand and blew it away forever, which taught Wanda this lesson. Witches who wash their wigs on windy winter Wednesdays are wacky. <laughs> this witch story was brought to you courtesy of the letter W. <laughs> um, another, uh, an, another important uh, development that became core to Sesame Street's approach is... Um, was was music used in, in in an interactive way to even though children were sitting in front of a screen and could not literally talk to Sesame Street or, you know, to, to Big Bird or, or their other favorite characters on Sesame Street, there was still Sesame Street. Um, uh, innovated a, a kind of interactivity <laughs> that you could still have, which today we kind of take for granted. I think kids are used to shows like Dora the Explorer, you know, asking a question, pausing for a moment, and then being like, that's right, you know, as if they're having a conversation. <laughs> Sesame Street was really early to that game, wasn't it? It really was. One of those things is not like the others, was this classification game put to music. One of these things is not like the others. One this, of these this, things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. Can you tell which thing? Sorry to jump in on you there, Lucille, but there it is. Oh, I so. love it. I love it. <laughs> so what's interactive? What, what, what does that song teach us about teaching kids? Well, it's, it's, it's a wonderful classification song. So, you know, you can you um, Everything has, and they would put to music any kind of goal. So if we were classifying objects of same and different shape, same and different, and so forth, um, that song would do it so beautifully. And, and everybody just had such fun, and it worked. It worked beautifully. And then the role of music, you know, there were very few dry pieces. In fact, probably hardly any at all on Sesame Street because the role of music was so pivotal. I mean, children love music. They dance to music. It causes mental participation as well as physical participation. For instance, like the song, that beautiful song, Being Green. It's not that easy being green. Having to spend each day the color of the leaves. That is phenomenal because um, it is causing someday uh, the child will learn that being green, oh, it's so hard to be green um, because it's the color of this and that. But then all of a sudden it is great being green because I'm like a tree in a beautiful mountain. But green's the color of spring and green can be cool and friendly like. And green could be big, like an ocean, or important, like a mountain, or tall, like a tree. And some child will go, hey, it's okay to be deaf, or it's okay, you know, to be black, or it's okay to be um, whatever I am. Mm -hmm. And that they're dealing with maybe a disability or difficulty or uh, whatever. And that mental participation of all of a sudden you're accepting yourself and you're saying, not only do I accept myself, but I am really great because and then they can think of all the ways they are great, no matter uh, what what they have or what they're dealing with. And so 
that song is beautiful. Of course, the theme song is, ah, mm-hmm. uh, that was written by three people. I mean, we've got Bruce Hart, uh, John Stone, and then Joe Raposo. And Joe Raposo was also the director of music and did so many phenomenal songs. And that one was also, hey, how do you get to Sesame Street? Well, I've got news for you for everybody wondering how to get to Sesame Street. Of course, it was always in the mind, mm-hmm. always in the mind. There's a, you could have a Sesame Street in two seconds in your, in your mind. But there is a physical place now in New York City called Sesame Street on about 63rd and Broadway. Lucille Burbank is an educational media consultant. She spent a decade working in the research department at Sesame Street. She's author of The Inside Secrets of Sesame Street, which is out with a third edition. It was nice speaking with you. Thank you so much, Lucille. I enjoyed it. Oh, my pleasure. I did too. Thank you for having me. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Groves. More great conversations from the Top of Mind archive are coming up. Thanks for tuning in to Top of Mind today. I'm Julie Rose. It's good to have you with us. Spending a lot of time on social media appears to be linked with higher risk of suicide in teenaged girls. That's a key finding from some new research by Brigham Young University Family Life Professor Sarah Coyne, who joins us now. Professor Coyne, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. The study you are working on is unusual. Who are the young people involved in this? It's a group of 500 adolescents from the Seattle area, and we started uh, examining them when they were about 13 years old, and we followed them for about a decade. Wow. So t- uh, 10 years. Now they're all in their um, like post-college years almost for yeah. the most part. Okay. Um, and w- how did you gauge... I know there are a lot of questions that are being asked of these young people and of their families in this study, but specifically with with regard to social media, how did you gauge the amount of time they were spending on social media? It's a really simple measure. Um, It's basically just an estimate of how much time they spent on social media. When we first had the question in the survey, uh, social media was kind of this new upcoming thing. And so in the next decade, we've learned about all kind of the contextual pieces of social media that we put in the survey later. But those earlier years, it's just a simple time measure. Okay, just asking a a 10 year old, how much time per day would you estimate you spend on social media? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Were you looking at other forms of quote unquote screen time as well? Yeah, we also looked at television, video games and cell phone use. And so what did you find um, among the teenage girls that you studied? So for teenage girls only, uh, starting at a really high level of social media use around the age of 13, and kind of our cutoff was two to three hours a day is where we saw kind of the problem starting. And that increased over time. So you start high and then that increases over time. That is related to higher suicide risk in early adulthood. A, more, a, a higher suicide risk, a, a higher chance that she will die by suicide or have suicidal thoughts. Mm-hmm. What were you defining as suicide risk? Yeah, so we defined it as thinking about suicide or attempting suicide, making a plan for suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, we, to our knowledge, didn't have anyone actually die by suicide in this project. And so that's why we just say suicide risk. And did you find anything at all similar among the teenage boys who used social media at the same level? We did not. There were no longitudinal findings for boys, which I was really surprised about. You know, I thought for sure something with video games or, you know, who knows, but there was just nothing. What do you make of this? Why why would it be especially harmful for girls? That's a great question, one I've pondered pretty deeply. Uh, I think that girls experience relationship distress a little bit differently than boys do. Research suggests they really tend to internalize that and feel it at deeper levels. And social media is kind of a minefield for relationship distress. Um, Depends on your interactions, clearly, but, you know, you can certainly feel left out at any given moment or experience cyberbullying or, you know, things like that. And 
research has also found that girls do other problematic things on, on social media more than boys do, like they have higher levels of social comparisons, you know, where they're thinking, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not popular enough, I'm not smart enough. Mm. They tend to experience a fear of missing out at higher levels than boys do as well. So I think a combination of all those, those things combined with kind of this nor, non-normative developmental pattern uh, is, is problematic for girls. What do you mean non-normative developmental pattern? Yeah, so if, if you're a 13-year-old girl, right, your brain is just not ready for everything that social media is going to throw at you if you're on it for three hours a day that increases over time, right? Just developmentally, your brain's not ready for that. And so 13 years old is a good time to start social media, but at really low levels in conjunction with a lot of parent talk and so on that just, you know, gradually increases over time. Mm-hmm. If you have a 13 who's already starting at that level and then increases, they're just, again, not developmentally ready for it. Is social media always harmful for girls? And it's just a matter of figuring out how to manage that harm. Absolutely not. Um, and I think that that's a good question because a lot of people, even after reading the studies, like, well, that's it. My kids are never being on social media, mm-hmm. right? Because, yeah, I mean, when you, when you hear the word suicide, that's, that's obviously very heavy and very deep. Um, social media can be protective, though, for suicide in terms of if you're having great, positive, connecting relationships with others, if you're following, um, you know, anti-suicide type websites or, um, and you have like this great, you know, connection of family and friends around you, it can be protective. And so it, it protective, it it can reduce your risk of suicide. Yeah, it can reduce your risk. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Okay. So what would be the more risky, harmful way to use social media? Contrast that for us. Yeah. So for example, there's some research looking at the distinction between active and passive use. So Passive use is how most people use social media, and they just scroll and scroll and scroll, right? And there's a little connection there, and that tends to be related to increased depressive symptoms. Hmm. If I'm using it in active ways, if I'm posting myself, if I'm making comments, especially if they're like good, kind, supportive comments to other people, that tends to be related to a, a reduction in depressive symptoms. And so that's an easy shift to make. And that goes from being risky to then protective. Wow, that's interesting because, Professor Coyne, it sounds like, I mean, you can be a passive consumer of social media, just scrolling and internalizing and maybe having this internal dialogue about like, oh, she's pretty, oh, I'm not as good as that, or oh, you know, I'm never going to post a picture because I don't look, whatever, you know, whatever those thoughts are. Everyone's hanging out without me, the FOMO stuff, fear of missing out. You can, social media in that way can be having a negative effect on a young person's mental health, even if they're not being actively bullied. I would have thought that would be the primary way that social media can be harmful is that people is that people do mean things on social media. Yeah, and for sure, cyberbullying is, you know, a huge risk factor. But yeah, you can feel really down about yourself just from the normal day to day. And I'll give you an example. And this is me, like an adult woman, right, that studies social media and mental health. But I, I had somebody in my old neighborhood that was constantly posting pictures of herself and a lot of my other neighbors going out and doing stuff together. Mm-hmm. And I was never invited, never in the pictures, right? <laughs> and even though, right, I feel like a fairly well-adjusted adult, that stung, that hurt. <laughs> and I was like, wow, I feel really left out right now. <laughs> like, this is kind of making me sad. And so I just made the choice, you know what? I don't need this in my life. And so I just unfollowed her. And it was really freeing <laughs> just to be able to do that, right? And I'm like, wow, if, if, you know, if, if I'm having these problems, a 13 and 14-year-old, again, who aren't, developmentally ready to deal with all of that um, experiences things at even greater levels than I do. Yeah. I want to circle back to what you said, Professor Coyne, about how 13 is a really great time to start using social media. So, but, but in, in, in a certain kind of way, what is the, um, the structure that you would recommend a parent set up with a 13 year old who's dying to have a TikTok account or, you know, to get on Insta? Yeah, and I actually have a 13-year-old daughter right now, so mm. and she loves TikTok. So we are right in this with everyone else, right? Okay. Um, so I think that 15 to about 30 minutes a day to start out with is all you need on social media. And 
this is what I do with my own daughter, is we have some pretty regular conversations about how your time on social media is making you feel. Mm. So she'll tell me about the people that she's following and um, their inspirational stories and, you know, how they make her want to be a better person and, and really make her happy. And I say, that's, that's how social media should make you feel, right? Mm. When, when it makes you feel sad about yourself, when you're doubting yourself, like those are the times when you can think, you know what? I'm going to turn it off right now and go do something else, you know? And so what you're doing is you're helping them become a critical thinker around their own media use and getting them in the habit of thinking that, right? Are you, are you setting up a, like a list of these are accounts you absolutely cannot follow and these are accounts you can follow and here's what you can post and here's what you can't post? Um, I'm personally not that restrictive, although I know some parents are and it works well for them. Mm. Um, what I do is I just follow her on TikTok and I just I'm kind of like a watchful eye and just kind of I'm aware of what she's doing. OK, so you um, follow her. She mm-hmm. had to sort of friend you or include yeah. you in her network. But you're not actually. Do you have her passwords? Um, do you think parents should have their kids social media passwords? That's a really good question. And it's one that's pretty hotly debated. Hmm. Um, I have her password for her phone. I do not have her password for TikTok right now, but I can see kind of everything that she's doing, right, by being her friend on it. Uh, But there's there's a level, again, of some privacy that I know kids want. And it's such a balance as a parent. So you want them to develop this autonomy and you want them to, to learn how to be like healthy users of their cell phone. If I'm, you know, if I'm constantly monitoring, constantly restricting till the age of 18, she's not going to learn to do that herself. And so, again, it's developmental. And so, you know, we'll start out kind of restrictive and then reduce those restrictions over time. Hmm. And that's, I think, how kids learn. Yeah. And I guess also by following your example. <laughs> so well, maybe. <laughs> that's tricky, too, though, right? That, that uh, I guess even for adults to kind of think about how social media is affecting them as they're engaging with it. Absolutely. I think it, I think it influences adults at a high level, though. We just don't have a lot of research on it. Speaking with Sarah Coyne, who is a professor of family life at Brigham Young University, thank you very much for taking time to talk us through your findings today. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts, you can call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Cleon Wall, Ciara Hewlett, and Kyle Raymond produced the show. Find more episodes on the free BYU Radio app. And there is a lot to discover. We've been on the air every weekday since the start of 2015. You'd have to listen nonstop for five months to hear all the conversations we've had on Top of Mind. There's a lot of great stuff there, too. So episodes like the one you've heard today are a selection of the very best from our vast archive. I hope we've whetted your appetite for more in-depth conversations to come here on Top of Mind. We would love to know what you think of the show. Email us, topofmind at byu.edu. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.